Well hello everyone and thank you for tuning in to tonight's talk. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm sure most of you do by now, uh, my name is Adam Wood and I'm the author of Swanson, The Life and Times of a Victorian Detective and each Wednesday for the past few weeks I've been given a series of talks on cases from Swanson's career. If you've missed any of these you, you can watch the recorded video on this page. Uh, tonight's case is one of my favourites. It's the theft and return of what was at the time the world's most famous painting, Georgiana, the Duchess of Devonshire by Thomas Gainsborough. And as always, if you have any questions or comments, please do post them in the comments below this feed and I'll answer them at the end. All was well as a porter named Brewer carried out his duties cleaning the exhibition rooms at Thomas Agnew and Sons, an art gallery at 39 Old Bond Street in London's Mayfair. It was just after closing on the evening of the Thursday, the 25th of May, 1876. Brewer visited each room, sweeping the floors and checking the contents were secure. Hanging in an upstairs room of its own was the Duchess of Devonshire by Thomas Gainsborough. As I've said, it was at that moment in time, the most famous painting in the world. Measuring roughly five foot by four foot, the portrait was considered one of Gainsborough's finest it showed a young woman of great beauty turned three quarters towards the artist, holding a pink rose in one hand and a bud in the other. Her expression was one of mischievous coyness, with a half-smile playing on her lips. She wore an ivory dress with a blue silk petticoat and sash, with an enormous black-brimmed hat on her head. Around eight o'clock, two men arrived at the gallery to deliver a large table. Brewer instructed his young daughter to watch the shop door while he helped to move the table to an upstairs room. With the job done, the porter locked and bolted the door, putting the key into his pocket before settling into his quarters at the rear of the building for the night. Shortly before seven o'clock the following morning, Brewer rose to begin reopening the gallery when he noticed that one of the front door locks had been sprung and the bolt, while still in position, had been raised. Initially thinking he'd made a mistake the previous evening and failed to lock the door properly, Brewer continued his rounds of the gallery. As he entered the Gainsborough room, he immediately saw that the Duchess of Devonshire was gone, an empty frame hanging in its customary position, but the canvas cut out. Its stretcher was resting against the wall, beneath the frame. The single window in the room, opposite the painting and overlooking Old Bond Street, was half open. Brewer went to fetch the gallery's owner, William Agnew, while his wife sent an errand boy to Scotland Yard. The police arrived shortly before eight o'clock in the form of Inspector John Micklejohn of Scotland Yard's detective department, shown here, and officers from nearby Vine Street Station. Taking statements from every employee, Micklejohn initially came to the conclusion that the thief had emptied the premises the previous day during opening hours, or while the table was being delivered, and secreted himself until Brewer and his family were asleep. The inspector suggested that the thief's plan had been to leave through the street door, but being un unable to open the mortise lock with the key still in Brewer's pocket, he had been compelled to exit via the window in the Gainsborough room. A closer examination, however, revealed chisel marks on the window frame outside the premises, indicating that the thief had entered the same way as he had exited. 
The missing portrait had been painted by Gainsbury between 1785 and 1787. Its subject was Georgiana Spencer, the 32-year-old wife of William Cavendish, the 5th Duke of Devonshire. Considered a great beauty of the day, Georgiana was equally as famous for her lifestyle as for her looks, much like her four times great niece, Diana Spencer of Wales, Princess of Wales rather. Married to Cavendish on her 17th birthday, Georgiana went on to give birth to four children, three by her husband, in addition to an illegitimate daughter by Earl Grey, later Prime Minister. She indulged in numerous affairs and introduced her husband to her closest friend, Lady Elizabeth Foster, whereupon the three lived together openly for 25 years in a menage a trois, before Georgiana died of an abscess of a liver in 1805, aged 48, at which point Cavendish married Elizabeth Foster. Throughout her short life, Georgiana was internationally famous, adored and reviled in equal measure. She was portrayed by Kira Knightley in the 2008 film, The Duchess. Upon completion, oh, excuse me. Sorry about this. Sorry about that. Upon completion, Gainsborough's portrait had been exhibited at the Royal Academy before being hung at the family seat at Chatsworth House. It was subsequently lost for several years before being discovered in the late 1830s in the home of Anne McGuinness, an elderly schoolmistress who had cut it down from the original full length portrait to three quarter length in order to fit it above her fireplace. She had thrown the portion cut off into the fire. The painting was sold in 1841 to art dealer John Bentley for £56 or £3,000 today. He gifted it to his friend the collector Wynne Ellis to be added to his magnificent collection. And the extent of the Ellis collection only became apparent in, after his death several years later when it was sold in 1876 in three portions. The first at the St James's Square premises of Christie, Manson and Woods on Saturday the 6th of May saw a total of 135 paintings sold, disposed of, including 17 by Reynolds, 13 by Turner and 12 by Gainsborough. When the Duchess of Devonshire was placed gently on an easel, a burst of applause broke out with the auctioneer Thomas Woods re remarking it was the finest portrait ever seen in that room. Bidding rose through hundreds and thousands of pounds until the hammer came down on the winning bid of £10,605 from William Agnew. It was an incredible sum for the period, the highest ever paid for a picture at auction, and represented a third of the auction's total sales of £32,300. The painting was put on display at Agnew's gallery a few days later, where from 10 in the morning till 6 in the evening, the public could view it, provided they paid the admission fee of one shilling. It was reported that between 200 and 300 people had visited every day. And it was soon announced that Samuel Cousins, the famous engraver, had been appointed to produce an engraving of the picture with proofs issued to subscribers at 10 guineas each, and more than a thousand pound had already been received. Whether Cousins got a chance to work before the painting was stolen is unknown, but almost immediately printers produced a carte de visite, such as the one shown here, bearing the engraved likeness of the Duchess of Devonshire, which could be coloured, hand coloured after the original if required. 
not missing a trick, the caption was swiftly changed to the stolen Duchess of Devonshire after the theft. Accusations and excuses soon followed. A resident of New Bond Street wrote to the Times complaining, on Saturday evening about three weeks ago, I wanted to see the policeman on duty and for that purpose I waited at my door at 11.37 until 12.29, a period of 52 minutes before I saw a constable and it is impossible for me to say when he did pass prior to this time. But even 52 minutes is quite sufficient time for any amount of booty to be disposed of by well-trained robbers. The usual watchman at Agnew's gallery, Charles Langham, shifted blame from himself to an unnamed deputy by claiming to have been off duty on the night in question. A retired policeman, Langham pointed out that he was employed as a private watchman by subscribers to a fund and expressed little sympathy for Agnew, who was not a member of the fund and therefore could not feel aggrieved at the loss of his property through any possible negligence of the private watchman. In desperation, Agnew offered a reward of a thousand pound for the recovery of the painting and the conviction of the thieves. Unsurprisingly, this led to a spate of false sightings, including one as far away as Vienna, and what proved to be a copy of the painting in nearby Bedford Square. A rag and bone man almost landed the Leeds artist Wells Smith in hot water after going through his rubbish and finding a scrap of paper bearing the words, what a nerve you must have had to collar the Gainsborough. What are you going to do with it? After lengthy questioning, Smith managed to convince the Leeds detectives that the note had been sent by a friend as a joke, which he'd thrown away and forgotten about. Music hall performers embraced the public's interest in the painting, putting on acts such as Fred Foster's The Great Impersonation of the Missing Duchess of Devonshire or Another Good Picture Gone Wrong, written by words of Burnot and featuring a facsimile costume by Madame Dolman. Scotland Yard reached a dead end, but for the officer placed in charge of the investigation, Inspector Micklejohn, far worse was to come six months later, when a gang of criminals were arrested and revealed that several of the Scotland Yard detectives were in their pay, leading to the trial of the detectives and a two-year prison sentence for Micklejohn and the others. Despite frequent rumours as to its whereabouts, the Duchess of Devonshire was not to be seen again in public for a quarter of a century. While Donald Swanson would be instrumental in the painting's eventual recovery, as we shall see, at, the, at this, the time it was stolen, he was still a uniformed police sergeant in K Division in East London. Perhaps news of the paint, theft of the painting and the mystery of its disappearance appealed to him, or maybe his superior office, officers recognised his talent. But either way, Swanson applied to join the detective department just a few weeks later. He had served nine years as a uniformed officer. On the 12th of September 1876, four months after the theft of the Gainsborough, Donald Swanson successfully completed his entrance examinations to the detective department. By this time comprising 30 detectives and was appointed detective sergeant. Three days later, he was transferred to A division based at Scotland Yard. Thankfully, he had joined too late to be involved in any of the corruption which had seen Micklejohn and others arrested but he would, and he would be part of the new raft of detectives who took the department forward in the guise of the CID. 
25 years later, Swanson had risen through the ranks to become Detective Superintendent of the CID at Scotland Yard, the top detective in the country. He had been appointed to the position in 1896 and had therefore served for five years in 1901 when many of his contemporaries began to take their retirement, with the result that younger officers began to come through the ranks. And if the increasing, increasingly frequent changes of Scotland Yard felt at the end of an era within the Metropolitan Police, that a new dawn was breaking generally was underlined on the 22nd of January 1901 when Queen Victoria died at Osborne House in Cowes. The 81-year-old monarch had arrived on the Isle of Wight to spend Christmas at Osborne House as per her recent custom, but had been ill for several days when, at 8 o'clock on the morning of the 22nd, a bulletin was issued which revealed that Victoria showed signs of diminishing strength. At noon it was announced that the Queen was sleeping and that several members of the royal family had arrived at Cowes. A final bulletin at 4pm by royal physicians James Reed, Douglas Powell and Thomas Barlow announced that Victoria was slowly sinking. The next news was a formal announcement by her son and heir. Osborne, 645. My beloved mother has just passed away, surrounded by her children and grandchildren, signed Albert Edward. And as the curtain was brought down on the longest reign of any British monarch, 63 years, 7 months and 2 days, an aristocratic lady not seen in public for almost 25 years was about to make a reappearance. Just six days before the old Queen had passed away, a telegram from Superintendent Donald Swanson was wired across the Atlantic to the New York offices of the world-famous Pinkerton Detective Agency. The message informed the recipients that, as a consequence of recent discussions between the American detectives and Scotland Yard, plans were to be put in place to finally secure the return of a long missing work of art. A subsequent cable sent by Swanson in March stated that a representative of a certain London company had left England on board the steamer Etruria, bound for New York. On arrival, he was met by a representative of the Pinkertons and directed to the Chicago offices of William Pinkerton, where he arrived on the 27th of March. The following morning, the Englishman met with William Pinkerton at the latter's offices and concluded a pre-agreed financial arrangement. He then returned to his hotel at the auditorium, where he ner uh, waited nervously along with his wife and the American detective. He would la later write, As the hour approached, I noticed Mr Pinkerton become more and more nervous, even more nervous than I was myself. About a quarter of an hour before the time appointed, we adjourned to the room upstairs, where, we, where it had been agreed that the picture would be delivered. The few minutes we spent behind the closed door were just a trifle nerve-shattering. By and by, there came a knock at the door. Come in, said Mr Pinkerton, and the door opened. An adult messenger was standing in the doorway, carrying a brown paper roll in his arm. Mr Agnew, he required, he queried. Yes, I replied and held out my hand. The messenger handed me the roll in silence, as if he'd been charged to deliver the most commonplace message in the world, and at once turned on his heel and left the room, closing the door quietly behind him. Save for the slightest trace of a scar on the rim of the hat, the picture is perfect. The face, hands and the body of the portrait are absolutely untouched. 
With these words, Mr. Charles Morland Agnew, second son of William Agnew, confirmed that Gainsborough's the Duchess of Devonshire had been safely recovered, a quarter of a century after its theft from the family's gallery on Old Bond Street. Wasting no time returning to England, Agnew travelled again on board the Etruria and docked at Liverpool on Monday the 8th of April. Apart from his wife, it is unlikely that any of the other 191 passengers knew that on board was a very valuable cargo. Rumours of the painting's whereabouts had circulated for years, but it wasn't until 1893, 17 years after it had been stolen, that a name was given to the thief. On the 24th of July 1893, the Pall Mall Gazette published a story in which it claimed to have sent an emissary to interview a prisoner at Louvain Jail in Belgium, who claimed to have stolen the Duchess. The man's name was Adam Worth. A week after the story was published, a Belgian newspaper poured scorn on the Gazette's claims by reporting that the man who, who had interviewed Worth, a Mr Marsend, had, had been fed a false story about the stolen painting by the prisoner and the Pall Mall Gazette had therefore been hoaxed into believing it. According to the Belgian reporter, when, when Worth heard the Gazette was published, had published a story, he went into fits of laughter. But the suspicion attached to Adam Worth failed to go away. In fact, Scotland Yard had known for some time that he was responsible. And when Frank Bowden, a, a partner of a company from, who, from whom two valuable paintings were stolen in July 1896, visited Superintendent Swanson at his offices at Scotland Yard. He was told the Duchess of Devonshire was known to be rolled up in a New York mansion and is subject to return if sufficient sum could be paid for it. Following Worth's release from Louvain in 1897, Swanson sent the cablegram shown here to William Pinkerton confirming his belief. He wrote, I have learned from several sources that Adam Worth, alias Raymond, on his release from, release from seven years penal servitude in Belgium, sailed from Antwerp to the United States. And a New York officer named Cuff, who is here on an extradition matter, corroborated the information and added they were aware of his presence in New York. I still retain the belief that Worth has control of the Gainsborough picture, which has been a white elephant. Just who was Adam Worth? In his 1924 book, Crime and Criminals, C.L. McClure Stevens claimed that Sir Robert, Sir Robert Anderson, by then deceased, had once told him that Worth was the cleverest and most resourceful criminal he'd met, supposedly saying he was Napoleon of the criminal world. None other could hold a candle to him. In his own book, Criminals and Crime, in which he proposed there was in reality very few criminal masterminds, Anderson certainly stated that Worth's schemes were Napoleonic and said that he was the most eminent in the criminal fraternity in his time as assistant commissioner. Adam Worth was born in 1844 in Eastern Germany to Jewish parents who emigrated to Massachusetts when their son was just five years old. Acquiring the nickname Little Adam due to his short stature, Worth ran away from home at the age of 14. And after some years in Boston drifted to New York, where he took a job as a clerk in a fashionable New York store. The only honest employment he would have in his entire life. It lasted one month. When the Civil War broke out, 
Worth enlisted into the Union Army with the New York Light Artillery. Despite being just 17 years old, Worth said he was 20. Later wounded at the Second Battle of Bull Run, Worth was mistakenly pronounced dead three weeks later on the 25th of September 1862. The mistake provided him with the means to reinvent himself and he became what was known as a bounty jumper, meaning he and countless others would enlist into a regiment under an assumed name, collect the money on offer and the promptly desert. The declaration of peace in August 1866 brought an end to this stage of worst criminal career. He drifted once more to New York, where he joined the thriving criminal fraternity in the Bowery by becoming a pickpocket. Aged as 20, Worth established a team of pocket dippers of varying ages, with himself as the head. Just as his career seemed to be on the up, he was caught stealing a package from an express delivery truck and sentenced to three months imprisonment at the notorious Sing Sing prison. He would not serve much of his time, however, managing to escape and slipping back into the anonymity of the Bowery. Now realising that pickpocketing brought potentially heavy consequences for a relatively small reward, Worth reformed his gang, but with the intention of committing burglaries and other thefts, he soon attempted to step up another level to bank robberies. In the late 1860s, Worth undertook a number of large-scale robberies, his first success being the theft of $20,000 worth of bombs from an insurance company in Cambridge, Massachusetts. With this and subsequent thefts, Worth took the spoils to notorious New York fence Mom Mendelbaum, who could sell on just about anything in return for giving just 10% back to the original thief. It was estimated that over two decades from 1862, she handled between five and $10 million. Mandelbaum would provide Adam Worth's introduction to the criminal big league as he met fellow crooks, including Max Shinburn and piano Charlie Bullard. Bullard and Shinburn had joined forces in 1869 with another professional thief, Ike Marsh, to relieve the Ocean National Bank of more than $100,000 after tunneling through the basement. Later the same year, Ike Marsh and Piano Charlie teamed up once again to rob the Hudson River Railway Express as it travelled from Buffalo to Grand Central Station, emptying the onboard safe and jumping off the train as it went through the Bronx with $100,000 stuffed into carpet bags. When Worth, Bullard and Marsh tunnelled into a Boston bank and made off with almost a million dollars in cash and bearer bonds in November 1869, it didn't take long for the Pinkerton Detective Agency to discover who was responsible. It was time for the thieves to lie low. Stuffing cash into false bottom trunks, Worth and Piano Charlie headed for England under new names. Bullard become Charles H. Wells and Worth Henry J. Raymond. Settling in Liverpool, the wealthy Americans were welcomed with no questions asked. But after robbing a pawn shop, Bullard began to tire of life in Liverpool and he and Worth made their way to London and then in June 1871 to Paris, where they opened the American Bar, which proved incredibly popular, especially with the criminal fraternity in Europe. Men such as Max Shinburn, Charles Becker, Joe Chapman and little Joe Wright, Elliot shown here, many of whom joined Worth and Bullard in their schemes. The Pinkertons continued to keep eye on the American Bar, largely with the assistance of their European agents, 
who were usually retired Metropolitan Police detectives. And eventually in 1873, William Pinkerton himself casually walked into the bar and ordered a drink. Worth joined him and the pair talked over old times before the private detective announced he'd better be, better be leaving. It was a simple tactic of letting the criminals know that they were being watched and it worked. Back home in Chicago, Pinkerton passed on his suspicions that the American bar was a centre of operations for a foreign criminal enterprise and recruited overseas police forces, including the Mets John Shaw, in an attempt to force local French police to close it down. And this happened after a raid, for once not tipped off. Piano Charlie, the legal owner of the American bar, skipped bail and headed for London, with Adam Worth and the rest of the gang following on some time later. Still a wealthy man, Worth rented a mansion close to Clapham Common, along with rooms on Piccadilly, and re-established himself as Henry Raymond. Almost immediately began plotting a series of daring robberies for which to use a network of criminals in the capital. In this way, although he profited from each scheme, he himself was all but immune from prosecution. It was in this way that over several years, Adam Worth earned himself the nickname of the Napoleon of Crime, as one audacious robbery after another was carried out. Through the vast amounts stolen, Worth was able to purchase a 110-foot yacht, which he, which he named the Shamrock. In 1874, the gang sailed to South America and the West Indies, where at Jamaica they stole $10,000 from a warehouse safe before heading out again to the open seas. It was another case to be added to the growing list held by the Pinkertons. Worth now lived the life of a wealthy English gentleman, which infuriated John Shaw, who had a file on the gang equally as large as William Pinkerton's, but who was also unable to find any proof of the Americans' involvement. And Adam Worth the Gentleman Thief was played by Michael Caine in the 1976 film Harry and Walter Go to New York. This was a state of affairs in April 1876, when a plan was hatched to raise funds by means of a forged cheque for a far sum of money. The skilled Charles Becker created the forgery and little Joe Elliott cashed the cheque without any problems at the London and Westminster Bank. It was now time to change the bank notes before the forgery was noticed, and for this part of the plan, Worth recruited his brother John, whom he dispatched to Paris with instructions to convert the notes at a busy bureau de change on the Grand Boulevard. However, John Worth was not as blessed with intelligence as his brother, and he went instead to the offices of Mayo and Co. Bank, having already fallen for one of Becker's forgeries in the past and been warned by Shaw to look out for the English notes of a large denomination, the bank wasted no time in alerting the French police, who arrested John Worth. He was extradited and held at Newgate Jail. Adam Worth found himself in a predicament. Unable to implicate himself in the forgery, he could not post a £3,000 bail himself, despite being comfortably able to, to afford to. He needed a plan whereby a seemingly respectable, respectable person could post his brother's bail, who would, who would then be spirited back to America. And this is when Worth saw announcements that Gainsborough's The Duchess of Devonshire, recently won an auction by William Agnew, was to be exhibited at the Bond Street Gallery. Immediately, Worth saw a way of using the world's most famous painting to achieve the release of his brother. 
By taking control of the Gainsborough, he could force William Agnew to post John Worth's bail, thus keeping himself out of things. He would pay a crooked solicitor to visit John in Newgate, claiming to represent him, and covertly hand over a small cutting from the canvas, which would serve as proof for the next part of his plan. The solicitor would then contact William Agnew, saying his client currently languishing in Newgate would be able to furnish him with information regarding the stolen painting in return for his help. Worth enlisted the assistance of two of his gang, the American Little Joe Elliot, to act as lookout, and an English crook who would assist in the actual theft. So late at night on Thursday the 25th of May, the gang made their way to Agnew's gallery. It was a foggy night, perfect for the activity which they were about to undertake. Little Joe stopped on the corner of Old Bond Street and began to watch. The two other men continued to Agnew's, where the tall, powerfully built Englishman stood directly outside, below a second floor window. Little Adam, at just five foot four inches, was easily able to climb onto the Englishman's shoulders and climb onto the top of the awning, waiting for the all clear before prizing open the window with a chisel. Once inside, Worth climbed, climbed up a stepladder and cut the Duchess from its frame, then rolled it up and simply passed it through the window to his, to his English accomplice. Then as silently as they had arrived, they, the gang slipped into the fog. Now, there's some confusion as to the identity of the Englishman involved. In the Pickerton's booklet telling the story of the theft, he's named as John Junker Phillips, a notorious travelling thief who'd been responsible for countless robberies across Europe and America. He'd once been transported to Australia, but escaped and made his way back to the continent. But in both Criminals and Crime and the Lighter Side of My Official Life, Assistant Commissioner Robert Anderson names the accomplice as an old sinner named Powell, a claim, a claim which had already appeared in newspaper stories published just prior to Worth's release from Louvain Jail in 1897. And in Donald Swanson's personal copy of the Pinkerton booklet shown here, despite the passage describing Worth climbing onto Junker's shoulders, the detective noted in pencil, no, it was old pal on whose shoulders he climbed. Sensibly lying low for several days after the theft, Worth waited before the putting the next part of his plan into action. In the meantime, the solicitor retained to defend John Worth discovered that his client had been extradited under an incorrect charge. The legal loophole resulted in the prisoner being released and told to leave the country within 30 days. He didn't need telling twice. This put Adam Worth in a difficult position. He'd had the Gainsborough hidden away but no longer needed it and also had no way of disposing of it. With no immediate solution presenting itself, this situation would continue for a great many years. Yet it would only take a year for the truth behind the theft to reach the ears of both the Pinkertons and Scotland Yard. Little Joe Elliot, shown on the left here, having received money from Worth for his share of the Gainsborough, returned to New York. He was soon arrested for getting involved in a $64,000 forgery, was convicted and sentenced to seven years imprisonment in April 1877. Much like Harry Benson offering to give information on Scotland Yard's corrupt detective department, in return for his release at almost exactly the same time. Elliot told everything he knew about the painting's theft to Robert Pinkerton, who passed on the information to the Met's John Shaw. 
Although this gave the English and American detectives valuable knowledge, for Joe Elliott no help could be given, as he had sold out his share on the painting, and therefore had no say on having it returned to its owners. He would serve his full seven-year sentence. With it now known that Adam Worth had masterminded the theft, it was a case of obtaining the evidence. In the meantime, he continued with his career, eventually travelling across the Atlantic with the painting hidden in the bottom of a, the false bottom of a trunk. Once in America, the painting was placed in another specially made trunk for protection, held in storage first in New York and then in Boston, where it lay undisturbed for a number of years. While Worth continued to mastermind a number of robberies and forgeries in the United States, South Africa and Europe. Eventually, in October 1892, he was caught in Belgium after attempting a mail robbery in Liège. He was convicted for the first and only time and sentenced to seven years in penal servitude, which he would spend in Louvain jail. And it was during this spell that Mr. Marsend visited Worth to inquire about the Duchess, as reported in the Pall Mall Gazette. Adam Worth was released four years into his sentence. As Donald Swanson had learned by the time of his 1897 telegram, upon his release from prison, Worth had sailed to America. In early 1899, he was in Chicago, and on the 10th of January, went to the Ashland Boulevard home of William Pinkerton. Finding the detective absent, away at his offices on Fifth Avenue, Worth left a letter with the strict instructions that it was for private communication and not to be opened by anyone else. At 12.28pm, Pinkerton received a telegram at his office simply stating, Letter awaiting you at house. Send for it. Having called home and arranged for the letter to be forwarded, Pinkerton found himself reading a request for a meeting with Worth in order to discuss a matter that might be to our mutual benefit. Writing under the name H. Raymond, the thief asked the private detective to give a sign that he was willing and able to meet to discuss the matter by placing an advertisement in the personal notice column of the Chicago Daily News, stating simply, Assurance given, WAP. Should such assurance be received, Worth would contact Pinkerton immediately and arrange an appointment. Pinkerton would did as he was asked that afternoon and at 11 o'clock the following morning received a telephone call from the Napoleon of Crime. Reassured that he could visit the Pinkerton office with impunity, five minutes later Worth was sitting opposite William Pinkerton. He was 55 years old, physically weak from years spent in prison and financially destitute. He had come to see whether the agency could assist with the disposal of the Duchess of Devonshire. Worth told Pinkerton that he wanted both himself and the private detective to make some money out of the painting being returned to the Agnews. But he was told under no circumstances could the agency take any money. And furthermore, they would not do anything to jeopardise their good working relationship with Scotland Yard. Pinkerton read out the statement of Joe Elliott made from the late 1870s regarding the theft of the Gainsborough, with Worth correcting minor errors. He then proceeded to narrate his life story, concluding by telling William Pinkerton that he was free to make use of it how he saw fit once Worth himself was dead. This is a, um, the statement made by Adam Worth. It's held in the Library of Congress files. <coughs> once the criminal had left his offices, 
William Pinkerton sent the confession to, confession to his brother Robert, who in turn wired the information to Superintendent Swanson at Scotland Yard. The Scottish detective now had the evidence which had been missing for so many years. Swanson handed confirmation of Worth's involvement to Inspector Frank Frost, who had taken charge of the case for several years. Frost discussed the matter with Agnew's solicitor Sir George Lewis and the demand for payment for the safe return of the painting. Having been victim of several hoaxes in the years that the Gainsborough had been missing, Lewis and the Agnews were understandably reluctant to open the purse strings too eagerly, and after drifting for some time, the deal was abandoned. At this stage, a mutual acquaintance of Worth and Pinkerton named Patrick Sheedy intervened. A respected professional gambler, Sheedy was well known in both London and America, and was therefore able to approach Scotland Yard with a proposal. On hearing that the Agnews refused to pay the amount asked for, Sheedy suggested to Frost that he could arrange for the painting to be returned for free, on the condition that he would be allowed to exhibit it for four months. This too was rejected by Lewis, but a second proposal from Sheedy a month later, that he be allowed to make in steel engraving of the picture, seemingly convinced the Agnews that he really was able to facilitate its return. They instructed Swanson to put the wheels in motion, and on the 19th of January 1901, the superintendent cabled the Pinkertons telling them to begin plans for a handover. In it, Swanson said, Swanson said the terms requested by Wolf would be agreed to, providing an identifying witness confirmed this was indeed the missing Duchess. And this is how Morland Agnew found himself anxiously waiting in his room at the Auditorium Hotel in Chicago on the 28th of March. The painting's arrival back on English shores were eagerly anticipated, but this didn't extend to all aspects of the Duchess's style. A fashion note bemoaned the likely increasing popularity of the large Gainsborough hat, last seen in the 1870s. By the turn of the century, small bonnets were being heavily promoted for ladies of a more petite frame. And one fashion writer complained that it was nothing so unbecoming for the short and the stout as a large Gainsborough hat, especially when worn at anything like an extravagant angle, as in the picture. As for the thief, in an increasingly poor state of health, Adam Worth had followed the Duchess across the Atlantic and returned to London. The end on the 8th, 8th of January 1902 was brought about by heart failure and liver disease no doubt exacerbated by his lifetime of thoroughly enjoying the fruits of his ill-gotten gains. The Pinkertons wasted no time in taking up Worth's offer of publishing the details of his career after his passing. Three months later, the story appeared in a pamphlet simply titled Adam Worth, with a second edition quickly appearing in February the following year, with the more descriptive title of Adam Worth alias Little Adam Fifth in recovery of Gainsborough's Duchess of Devonshire. The preface warned that warned the reader that if the fiction writer conceived such a can conceive such a story, he might well hesitate to write it for fear of being accused of using the wildly improbable. The British newspapers agreed, commenting that while the credit for the recovery of the painting belonged to the American detectives in conjunction with Scotland Yard, the Pinkerton booklet wrote one reporter gave an elaborate history of their share of the transaction, which reads like a chapter from Sherlock Holmes. 
with Adam Worth described by some as a real-life Moriarty. Perhaps that was fitting. Swiftly after the Duchess of Devonshire from America, returned from America to London was John, uh, John Pierpont Morgan, the still magnate, who docked at Liverpool on the 10th of April 1901, two days after Morland Agnew stepped off the Etruria with a painting under his arm. It was soon reported that Morgan had joined Senator Clark of Montana in making an offer to Agnews for the Duchess, and eventually Lockett Agnew, Morland Agnew's cousin who had now taken over the day-to-day -day running of the gallery, confirmed that an agreement had been reached with Morgan. The amount was reported at either twenty-five or £30,000, either way a tidy profit for the gallery. Reaction to the American purchasing such a national treasure was met with alarm by some newspapers who, while commending the Agnews on their business sense, complained, Since the picture had been sold to the American millionaire, it is supposed that Londoners, who were simply thirsting to pay their shillings review of the Duchess, will be balked by, of their desire. So far as the British public is concerned, the picture might as well be remained in the bottom of a trunk in Chicago, for it will now probably go to adorn Mr Morgan's town mansion in New York. This purchase, indeed, opens up an alarming prospect of what will happen to our English masterpieces when the Yankee millionaires have acquired a taste for them. In fact, Morgan did allow his acquisition to be displayed at Agnew's Gallery for a spell as part of the exhibition that November in aid of the Artist General Benevolent Institution. A reviewer commented that hundreds of connoisseurs had visited daily and that the canvas was a most captivating one. The subject's sensual beauty being brought out by a fresh coat of varnish. The Duchess of Devonshire stayed on display for some weeks before being retired to Morgan's Kensington mansion, where it would remain for a decade. The Duchess of Devonshire eventually returned to America in 1913, to be kept at Pierpoint Morgan's New York home on 37 East 36th Street. The millionaire died that same year and the painting passed to his heirs. When Morgan's last surviving grandchild, Mabel Ingalls, died in age 92 in December 1993, the family decided to sell it. And so it happened that the Duchess of Devonshire once again went up for auction in London, this time at Sotheby's, just yards from Agnew's, Agnew's Bond Street Gallery, where it had been stolen 120 years earlier. On the 13th of July 1994, the hammer went down on a winning bid of $408,000 by the Chatsworth House Trust, bidding on behalf of the 11th Duke of Devonshire. After 200 years, Gainsborough's portrait of Georgiana Spencer had returned to the family home. Interestingly, from the first viewing of the Duchess at Agnew's Gallery for its return in 1901, there were whispers that this was not Gainsborough's original painting of Georgiana, but a copy of another portrait by the great artist, that of Lady Elizabeth Foster, second wife of William Cavendish. A story in the, Dar the Derby Daily Telegraph of the 12th of April 1901 reported that the painting had never been referred to as the Duchess of Devonshire by the restorer and art dealer John Bentley after he'd bought it from Miss McGuinness, nor when given it to Wynne Ellis shortly afterwards although it was recognised as a work by Thomas Gainsborough. In fact, Bentley had told his daughter that when Miss McGuinness had parted with the portrait, she had kissed it, saying it was a relative. 
The painting seems to have only gained the title Duchess of Devonshire at the time of the 1876 Christie auction. And in the 1940 book Let Me Tell You, the art gallery and critic A.C.R. Carter claimed that the painting sold from the Wynne Ellis collection in 1876 was not Gainsborough's Georgiana at all, but a sketched copy of his portrait of Lady Elizabeth Foster, heavily restored and painted up at Christie's by a man named Partington prior to the auction at which the piece was purchased by William Agnew. Although C. Morland Agnew confirmed that the painting he received at Chicago's Auditorium Hotel was indeed the painting stolen from Bond Street in 1876, and which now hangs at Chatsworth House, whether it was ever Gainsborough's portrait of Georgiana is open to debate. Whether the painting sold, the, the painting sold and purchased by William Agnew for a world record sum was known as Duchess of Devonshire or not, that it was the same artwork recovered in 1901 is confirmed by this photograph, one of three or four copies held in the Swanson family archive. It's easy to imagine Donald Swanson carrying a copy at all times in order to compare with any potential portrait put forward as a missing duchess, as I'm sure did other detectives such as Inspector Frank Frost. Thank you for tuning in and I hope you enjoyed the talk. If you'd like to read more about the life and career of Donald Swanson, including the details of this case, the book is available at mangobooks.co.uk in all formats. Thank you.